0: I'm going to speak now based on our reading from Acts chapter 9 earlier uh, in the service. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to have it open uh, in front of you. Uh, There's a few ways of reading the story of Tabitha being brought back to life. Uh, Firstly, uh, you can and probably should be struck with amazement. I mean, wow, Uh, here is a woman who was dead and brought back to life. But hey, when we read it earlier, if you weren't struck with amazement, there's a, possible, a few possible reasons why that might be the case. Maybe we're desensitised. Uh, either you've heard the story before or maybe you haven't, but you've been in church for long enough that you're generally accustomed to talk of miracles uh, and someone coming back uh, from, life, uh, from death to life is all in a day's work on a Sunday morning. Uh, there's another reason it may not feel as amazing as, as it really is. Uh, it feels otherworldly perhaps. So foreign, so long ago, you can picture them wearing different things. It's more like something you might see on a TV screen uh, than something that might happen in reality. Uh, maybe your Christian faith already predisposes you to taking this stuff on face, face value. Uh, but there's, and yet there's a distance about the story that makes it somehow easy to remain unaffected and unchanged, even when someone comes back from the dead. Uh, maybe, for you uh, there 's a bit of da- doubt sitting there as well, like what if these agent people just made a mistake uh, and she wasn 't really dead, uh, but you know it was just one of those fluky things that i 'm sure happened all the time way back in in those days. Uh, these were uneducated people, they might not know the difference between a dead person and someone who 's just really crook well i don 't think that 's quite fair uh, but all in all, all those reasons, they feel a bit critical as if a deficiency in your faith or a lack of spiritual vitality might be the thing that's to blame for us not gasping in awe at what we've just read. And maybe there is a bit of that uh, in you, that's worth thinking about. But I also think that we can be a bit more generous on ourselves as well. And hey, look, I'm assuming that you didn't gasp in the story uh, when it, uh, when it said that um, that Tabitha was brought back to life. But maybe you did. Maybe this is brand new and amazing, and that's wonderful for you. But if you didn't, and I suspect most of us didn't, I didn't hear any gasping. I do think we can be a bit more generous on ourselves. I think we can thank the author, Luke who wrote the book of Acts, for giving us a retelling that is just simple and matter-of-fact. It's more sweet as you read it than it is jaw-dropping. It's more beautiful uh, than it is gasp-worthy. And I think that's a fair analysis, as you just read it on face value. Uh, But I do want to say there's a few layers of context that we need to understand in order to help us see why Luke is able to tell such an amazing story in such a straightforward way. There's some, there's some layers of context, because he doesn't just rip this story out at a party uh, expecting a response. It's part of a bigger story. It's part of a history. And so there's a few layers of context. First, I want to talk about the context of this book of Acts. So I'm going to just bring us back to chapter 1, verse 8. I've got a slide for this. Jesus said... This is just as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and leave his disciples to go on doing his work. He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The book of Acts covers the years immediately after Jesus' own resurrection from the dead and his ascent into heaven. And the storyline of the book is summarised in this verse. Uh, And I'll get you to do the next slide, Tom, which highlights something. This is about the Holy Spirit. This is about the Holy Spirit continuing the work that Jesus had begun to call the people out of sin and into life. Uh, And unsurprisingly, the pattern is almost identical to Jesus' own. Uh, The Holy Spirit's power pours out in miraculous signs and wonders and in the bold proclamation of the word of life. That's how Jesus went about his work. That's how his disciples go about Jesus' ongoing work throughout the book of Acts. Uh, The event of Tabitha's resurrection fits perfectly within this context. It is both a miraculous sign uh, demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit uh, and it uh, it triggers the further advancement of God's word uh, in this sort of ripple effect. Uh, that began, uh, as you even read up there, in Jerusalem and where it's outward to uh, Judea, uh, which is where the events in chapter 9 take place, uh, and then further to Samaria and then the ends of the earth. And now that's the context within this book. A second is the context of the miracles themselves, uh, all the miracles, right, throughout Scripture. I'm going to try and lump them all together a little. Uh, There is a story uh, in the Gospels uh, that is told by Luke and I think Matthew as well. Uh, It's a story of John the Baptist uh, sending his messengers to Jesus during Jesus' ministry uh, to ask Jesus if he is the one. You know, Jesus has arrived, he's burst onto the scene, he's performing miracles, he's preaching to crowds, and yet there's still this gnawing doubt uh, in the minds of the people who have been waiting for Jesus to come. Uh, Is he really the one or should we just, you know, think he's really great but hang out for for the real one that's still to come? Well, Luke, uh, he's the same man who wrote the book of Acts, but he tells us Jesus' response to this question. Are you the one or should we wait for someone else to come? Jesus said... Uh, And this is on the slide. Jesus said, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. The first thing to reinforce here is the point that we already made uh, that the pattern of Acts is a continuation of the pattern of Jesus. Uh, there's another slide to highlight, seen and heard. Jesus says, just tell John what you've seen and heard. This is a reference to the miraculous acts of power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God preached in power and heard by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second thing to note is the fact uh, that, uh, and another slide, time just to highlight the dead being raised, it is just lumped discreetly along with the other miracles. There's no sort of prior of place or so maybe it's left to the end as a climax, but it really is just lumped as one after another of a series of miracles. Uh, you know the um, uh, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear, the blind can see, the dead are raised, all of this lumped together is evidence of something. Uh, there, and and we see evidence even in today's passage uh, that there is something just you know... Almost run of the mill in the context of miracles, which of course are never run of the mill. But there's something almost run in the mill, or run of the mill, or formulaic uh, in this resurrection of Tabitha from the dead. Because as we read earlier in the in the service today, there were two stories side by side. One is the story of a paralyzed man who is healed, uh, and then a woman who is raised from the dead. And these stories appear side by side with any real difference uh, in tone or emphasis between the two. The man uh, who's uh, healed of his paralysis is, is named. Tabitha is named. Uh, both are told, uh, in, in Peter's words, to arise. It's the same word used in the way it's written. One is told to arise from his paralysis and the other is told to arise from the dead. Now, uh, one isn't set apart as being particularly more amazing uh, or significant than the other. Both of them, if you read the last verse of each little section, result... In the advancement of God's word, as people hear of what God has done and respond in faith uh, to uh, the proclamation of God's word, and so there is a sense, okay, in which of course you know rising someone from the dead is more amazing. Uh, you you know you look at the the uh, what was it the skull of the, the was it a bull I assume it was a cow okay um, and um, and um, you know, and there's a sense in which, of course, that is more miraculous than you know water into wine or something like that. Uh, but there is a sense in which these are all the same. They all uh, are pointing towards the same purpose. Why? What is the purpose? Why do the miracles go alongside the preaching of God's Word? Why does it happen? Uh, the first reason is that they are there to validate the message. The miracles are there to validate the message uh, when uh, someone of note a celebrity or an elite sports person or something when they speak uh, people listen uh, their words and their tweets you know hit the headlines and people pay attention and uh, we might criticize the things they say but we hear them and they get uh, more weight than the words of just you or I or any other person down the street these people do amazing things which provide them a platform and we listen and there's an element, okay, an element of this going on here uh, in the Bible. If I tell you something that you just don't believe, I tell you an unbelievable story, and then I go on to do something impossibly impressive, well, your doubt that you had at the start might turn to, well, maybe I should at least pay attention to this person. There's something going on here that I, that I want to be a part of or, or I want to try to understand a bit deeper. Uh, the miracles, at the very least, they validate the message, or they they provide some purpose in that. They also do something else. They validate the messenger. They validate the messenger. If Jesus and his followers can do things that only God could do, then that would suggest that God is working through Jesus and his messengers. And if God is working through them, then it stands to reason that God approves of uh, the things that they do and the things that they say. They have been validated by God as God works through them uh, the messenger themselves has been validated. That's up there with the most basic and essential implications of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' own resurrection from the dead is his vindication, his validation. He was a man who was despised and rejected by men and put to death, and God turned it all backwards and raised him back to life as a big in your face to the people who had attacked Jesus. God has validated the messenger. He's approved of Jesus. Now, there's more to Jesus' resurrection than that, but especially the evidence for the early church is that that was a big part of it. If God raises man from the dead, then surely everything he stood for and everything he did was real and true and, and bears paying attention to. He must be Lord. It validates the messenger. Miracles validate the message. They validate the messenger Uh, but I also want to speak to what I think is a bit of an elephant in the room. Uh, There's a hole in this reasoning, okay? Uh, Let me tell you this. Uh, What if I tell you that I can predict the future? Now, some of you will laugh because I've been trying to predict the future ever since COVID hit uh, our shores, and I've gotten all my predictions wrong. I I don't know the future, but let's pretend I tell you I do. I can predict the future. Uh, You probably won't believe me, But then I go outside and if one hand, I lift my own car over my head with one hand. Well, like I said before, perhaps you would think to yourself, well, maybe I should pay attention to this guy. Not even just out of fear, but just like something's going on here. But here's the problem with that. A feat of superhuman strength really does have absolutely nothing to do with the ability to see into the future does it? Just because I can lift a car with one hand doesn't, it might make me impressive, uh, which clearly I'm not, but it, it might make one impressive if they could lift a car over their head but it doesn't mean they can see the future, it's a different set of skill set. So it doesn't entirely prove my point that I can see the future just if I can do something really powerful. Is that what the miracles are like? Do we have you know these miracles which are amazing just running alongside and sort of the the sideshow act uh, to this uh, proclamation of God's word, this message of God's word? Are they simply an impressive sideshow but otherwise unrelated? And the answer is no. They are not unrelated. The miracles are the message. The miracles are the message. It's not the whole message. Uh, that's why uh, we still prioritise the teaching and believing in God's word. But the miracles are the message. They are intrinsically related. When Jesus is asked, as I think these words are still behind me, when Jesus is asked if he's the Messiah, he just repeats back to them the same things they've already seen him do. Healing blind, lame, lepers, deaf and dead people. Healing them all alongside the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And in performing all of these healings, Jesus is giving an indication of what this kingdom of God is like, a place of victory over suffering, a place where there is no death. Jesus is giving an introduction, a taste of what he's promising for the future when when he arrives in power. The miracles are the message. No sickness or pain. In the case of the dead being raised, no death. In fact, eternal life. See, Jesus' message wasn't just one of moral stuff. Love your neighbour, put others first, etc. Good stuff, powerful stuff. But that's not all. Uh, Jesus' message was a promise of a kingdom with himself reigning in absolute power over sickness and death. Now I know that I've done all this to sort of give a bit of a background or a summary of miracles and I've barely even talked about Acts chapter 9 and we're really just going to do this very quickly because as I said at the start, it is, it's a simple story, simply told uh, and, uh, and it falls into this context of all the miracle stories. But let's have a look again uh, at what takes place. Peter is on a preaching tour uh, of northern Judea uh, and he's in a place called Lydda, in a place called Lydda, he comes across a man who's been paralysed, a bedridden for eight years. His name is Aeneas. Uh, and Peter, without us being told that Peter's even asked to do anything of the sort, he says to him, uh, in the name of Jesus, or no, Was he say? Jesus Christ heals you. Stand up and prepare your bed. And he stands up and does it. I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. It's very much in the same vein as Jesus healing other people, other paralysed people and others. Uh, While uh, while Peter is in Lydda, uh, there's a place about 15 kilometres away on the coast called Joppa. And there is a lady there called Tabitha. Uh, whose name we're told is translated Dorcas. I don't know if that's a helpful translation to you. Dorcas doesn't mean much to me either. Uh, my dictionary tells me that, it, that both words in different languages mean gazelle. Um, it's a lovely sounding name. Uh, and, uh, and not only does she have a lovely name, uh, she's a lovely person. Uh, she does great works, uh, deeds of charity. She's generous, probably has means. She's probably reasonably well off. Uh, And and has resources to give, and with her resources, she does give generously. She becomes very sick, uh, and she dies. And they do the normal stuff: Uh, they prepare her body, they wash it, they lay her uh, in the upper room. uh, And I'm told that uh, that the principle was that they would bury her at sundown uh, on the day that she was born, uh, on the day that she passed. And so they send quickly. I presume, very quickly, uh, to, uh, to litter 15 kilometres away. Uh, a couple of men to find Peter and bring him back. Now, we get some mixed messages here. We don't know whether the people are expecting her to be brought back to life or not. Uh, it seems like they've, you know, they've really gone to the top. Uh, there would have been other believers nearby, that anyone who could have prayed, but they, they really want or expect something powerful, I think, when they, when they call on Peter. But by the same token, they've prepared her body for burial, just like You would, Uh, and so it's hard to know exactly what's in the minds of the people when they send for Peter, Uh, but he comes. He bows by her uh, by her bedside. Um, Sorry, before that, uh, he gets shown all the great things that she's done, all the things that she's made. She's a lady who's been very productive in her life, Uh, and Peter does what Jesus did uh, when Jesus uh, raised a young girl named Talitha. Oh no, not named Talitha, a young girl from the dead. Uh, he sends the mourners outside, uh, he bows by her bedside and he says a prayer uh, and then he commands her to stand up. He says, Tabitha, arise. Uh, which is really amazing because if you read back and we'll come to this story at another time, um, there, there is a story when Jesus uh, raises a young girl from the dead. Uh, and it says uh, in scripture that he says to her, Talitha Coon. Uh, which in the language of the time means, Talitha means little girl, arise. Uh, and there's just this beautiful symmetry, I think, that Peter chooses to name, to, to use uh, the name Tabitha and probably Coombe, changing the words that Jesus had said only by about a letter. Now, that's not to say that these are the magic words, but we just see a symmetry in the work of Jesus carrying over into uh, his messengers uh, as these people are validated uh, with his word. She sits up, Peter takes her downstairs and presents her to people alive uh, and just like what happened when the paralysed man was raised, uh, when uh, Tabitha is raised, people hear the word and they respond with joy uh, and, the, and the word gets around. What are some lessons, particularly from this passage, that we can take? I think the first thing uh, that I want to highlight is uh, the basis of God's favour. What is the basis of God's favour? Why are these people chosen? Why the paralysed man? Why Tabitha? Well, there's something uh, interesting here, I think. And and I think the answer uh, lies, you know, if you were to personalise this as well, is to say, it is not what I have done. Uh, God's favour does not rest uh, on your goodness or your accomplishments. It is not what I have done. Tabitha, we have uh, a picture of a lady uh, who is rich in good works who has a vast reputation, generous perhaps to a fault. Verse 36 says she is full of good works and charity. And verse 39 has got all these people falling over themselves to show off all the wonderful things that she has produced in her productive life on earth. And she is raised from the dead. But in the paragraph just before that, we have Aeneas, which is contrasted magnificently with a lady who is brilliantly productive we have a man who is essentially useless. For eight years, he's been bedridden. Now, what this tells us at the very least is that Tabitha wasn't raised because she was good, because of the good things she did. Uh, Because if that was the whole reason in Tabitha, then the paralyzed man would not have received his raising either because what scope did he have to do good things? He might have had good thoughts. He may have led a life of mighty prayer. Uh, We don't know for sure. Uh, but there weren't, certainly weren't people waving around his accomplishments uh, in your face. It is not what I have done. We have a God who is rich in grace, uh, who looks on all equally uh, and gives his favour as he pleases. And that reduces all need for, you know, for striving for attention. Uh, it reduces all need for anxiety about whether you're good enough or whether you could possibly be loved. God is love. What's interesting is we see just a similar thread carried through in this passage in the last verse that I read of verse 43. It said that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days and he lived with Simon, a tanner. A tanner is someone who you know, prepares skins. Um, and in the Jewish faith... Uh, dealing with dead animal skins and bodies would mean that would make you unclean, and so in the Jewish faith, uh, Simon would have been you know one of the lower citizens. His house probably stank, which might be why he lived by the sea—not not necessarily a resort um, house, but uh, somewhere just to sort of let the breezes you know flow through the place. And yet he is the guy who has the great Peter stain. In his house. Uh, And then if you read on to the next chapter, you'll see again this thread of people uh, being accepted warmly into God's kingdom, people from all backgrounds. That's in chapter 10. We won't come to that. What else do we learn in this passage? I think something else that we see that really uh, leaps out, and I've already highlighted it, is glory to Jesus. All the glory to Jesus. We see it in Peter's words. Uh, when he says in verse 34 to Anais, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Not even in the name of Jesus Christ, I heal you, but Jesus Christ does the work. Beautiful recognition from Peter that he is the conduit or the vessel and Jesus is the master. He is the one with the power. Uh, we see when, uh, when he kneels uh, to, uh, to rise Tabitha, he first consults God. He kneels in prayer. To God be the glory. He even repeats almost Jesus' own words in uh, Talitha Coombe, Tabitha Coombe. There's at least one other thing we see in all of this and that it, it we do well to be reminded of. And that is that death is wrong. Death is a thing uh, to be grieved and to be fought. I mean, we don't always talk this way at church. We want to be full of hope when we think about death. Uh, We are told and we believe that there is hope for a life after death, that the grave isn't the end. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, uh, talks about his own coming death and he says that he would consider it joy to depart and be with the Lord. He he looks forward in many ways to his own death. And yet there's this admission all throughout Scripture that there is just something wrong and gut-wrenching. Uh, about death. It is not the way it's meant to be. And we learn that from page three, or chapter three of of the book of Genesis, Uh, when we learn that death is actually a result of the curse uh, of man and woman's sin uh, in those first days. And we know from experience uh, when you've lost someone that it just feels not only sad, or at least this is my experience, not just sad, but wrong. It just feels like death is so it's so sickening to the soul. It doesn't belong, and so we have here again uh, just this uh, what I was talking about before that the miracle is the message. Uh, we are reminded and comforted as one man is healed from his sickness and another lady brought back from the death uh, that. Uh, the message of the kingdom of God is one of hope, one of life, one of vitality and health and strength, uh, and uh, and unshakable joy. The miracle is the message. Uh, just as Jesus's life gives us a, uh, Jesus's resurrection gives us a promise of a hope that He is the firstborn of many to come back from the dead. Uh, we see. Uh, In what happens to to Tabitha, a similar thing in snapshot of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in and the one that he's invited us all to be a part of. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Uh, We thank you for your precious word that you, uh, our maker, uh, have spoken to us, revealed yourself to us, uh, so that we can know you and hear from you. May we not take uh, these gifts for granted. Father, we thank you for the story that we read today, the true events, just simply and beautifully told, so matter of fact, uh, because it's the message uh, of what we have to look forward to. The absence of sickness, the absence of tragedy, uh, the death of death, uh, as life prevails uh, in eternity. Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our lack of faith. We pray that you uh, will help us uh, to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, give all glory to him uh, and to live in faith Uh, and obedience to him. We pray in his name. Amen.